Welcome to the Sword and the Trial podcast. The Sword and the Trial is a ministry of Founders Ministries. We're located here in Cape Coral, Florida, and I am Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. Founders Ministries is committed to the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. We appreciate you joining us today for this conversation. Yeah, we often uh, often talk about that, our mission as a ministry, the uh, recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. So... We should talk today a little bit about what that means, um, how we go about doing that, and, and what that's looked like over the years at Founders. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. People ask that periodically and want to know what Founders is, how Founders got started, and are we still staying true to our mission? Of course, Founders began uh, back in 1982. In fact, 1983 was our first conference, which means next year's conference will be in celebration of our 40th anniversary as a ministry. And we began in the midst of the inerrancy controversy in the SBC particularly, but in the broader evangelical world. Things were going on in different seminaries and different uh, Christian organizations, parachurch ministries and such, to uh, try to recover the full authority of Scripture in the minds of and hearts and minds of God's people and in various institutions. And man, that was raging in the early 80s in the SBC. And those of us who got together to establish what became Founders Ministries, we were all committed inerrantists, but we also recognized that we're going to have to decide what that inerrant scripture actually teaches and wanting to uh, consider the sufficiency of scripture, knowing that that's also an issue. And we were committed to the doctrines of grace. So we were all reformed in our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And we knew that the founders of the SBC were also there theologically. So that's where we got the name, the Founders uh, Ministries. That's where it comes from. Uh, it's interesting, the recovery of the gospel, reformation of local churches. People have asked me over the last few years, you know, when did you start saying that? And that's different than the the original mission of Founders. It's, it's really not true. This is a book that I edited. It's been, I don't know, nearly 20 years ago or so, called Reclaiming the Gospel and Reforming Local Churches. And so we were talking like this uh, for years about what we were about regarding the, the whole philosophy and approach and aim of the ministry. This is the Southern Baptist Founders Conference papers from 1982 to 2002. Not all of the presentations of those conferences, but several of them, representative ones. And it's a, it's a fascinating book. Just recently have looked back through it some. And, man, there's some fun things in here, some things that I think people would uh, be interested in knowing about today. Yeah, and look, it's a very retro cover. And we, <laughs> cover designed by Tom Askell, I have to confess. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably back in style, wouldn't you Yeah, say? I would say we should sell it for more because uh, it's retro. Yeah, and I think we're, why don't we put this on sale for – Twelve dollars. It's six hundred and seventy something pages, hardback. Twelve dollars. Wow. I mean, it's, it'll probably cost us more than that to, to ship it to you. But uh, paper costs. You probably could take this, recycle, and get your money back for it. Uh, <laughs> it's very generous. Of yeah, you know. but you'll find all kinds of contributors in this book. I mean, David Miller, the Lordship of Christ and Evangelism. If you've not ever heard uh, David Miller preach about the Lordship of Christ, then uh, you'll want to read this transcript of that message that he gave at an early Founders Conference. R.F. Gates has uh, an article in here on 
missions and evangelism, the spiritual state of those we evangelize. RF is now with the Lord, but he was an itinerant evangelist and spoke regularly for the Founders Conference in the early years. Uh, George Martin, who's now a professor of missions at Southern Seminary, who was a missionary in Indonesia at the time, wrote The Doctrines of Grace and World Missions. And there's um, other ones, Tom Nettles, David Kingdon, Roger, Roger Nicole, yeah, Roger John MacArthur, Nicole. yeah, uh, Ben Mitchell, John Thornberry, Timothy George, Mark Dever, Mark Coppinger, Errol Hulse, Errol Hulse, yeah, yeah. I see a lot of these board. names. Founders is almost a decade older than I am. Did you know that? <laughs> and so a lot of these names I just know from ancient history. Um, but it's it's good to know them and to to see their writings and be able to read the writings, and you just get so much perspective uh, being able to read men who dealt with different issues, different controversies than exactly what we're facing now. And the way then the, the way that they dealt with those issues apply today. And it wasn't even, you know, that long ago. Yeah, that's right. So uh, you can order this book for the next week from Founders Ministries for $12 and you'll get, uh, it's an edited volume. So there's, these are, these are transcripts of talks that were given in the first 20 years of the Founders Conference. There's a lot of of really wonderful material in that. For those that are interested in kind of the theological foundation and background as to why Founders Ministries began, this is a little book that might be helpful to you. It's also... Also (laughs) retro. Yeah, it's come back in style as well. Uh, We haven't changed the cover, though we probably should. This is a revised edition from the Protestant Reformation to the Southern Baptist Convention, What Hath Geneva to Do with Nashville? And um, this has... Included in it as appendices, the Charleston Confession of Faith and the Summary of Church Discipline. So those old documents are valuable in and of themselves. But this just traces in broad designs what, uh, how the SBC came into existence and what the connection is with generations prior growing out of the Protestant Reformation. Now, there's a section in here titled From the Protestant Reformation to 1619. Is that, uh, were you working with the New York Times when you wrote that section? <laughs> the 1619 Project? No, but we ought to send this to them. You know, yeah. they, they might benefit from that as well. So it's, it's fascinating to me to think about what has gone on in our culture and how Founders has tried to uh, be involved in addressing some of those things over the last few years out of our core convictions. And I remember a board meeting probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago or so when our board got together and I pitched to them what I thought would be a a helpful kind of refined focus for our agenda going forward. And there were three things in that. So I really think we need to focus on confessionalism. We need to focus on law and gospel, and we need to focus on pastoral theology. And those three things we adopted, and that's kind of shaped the direction that we have been zeroing in on, staying true to our our original purpose, but refining that and trying to think more critically about the needs of the day. And by God's grace, those things have helped us and positioned us in uh, addressing a lot of the things we've done over the last few years. Yeah, you know, and none of them, they're not, they're not disconnected, you know, they're distinct, um, but they're not separate. So confessionalism and law and gospel issues, as a pastor, um, confessionalism, the, in my adherence to a confession of the faith in the church, um, that touches on everything I do from preaching to counseling to um, administrative work even. Um, Law and gospel touches on everything I do from preaching to counseling. And so, um, 
pastoral theology, law, gospel, confessionalism, it really is, these three issues are central to healthy churches. Yeah, I agree. And I get it all the time. Uh, people are asking me, you know, what, what do you mean by confessionalism? And of course, our confession of faith is the 1689 Baptist Confession. And this modern English version of it uh, was put together by Stan Reeves, and he, he bounced it off a lot of guys. But Stan has done a tremendous uh, service to the church by making the 1689 Confession more accessible. And I, I don't know how many of these we've distributed, but it's the tens of thousands of these that we've distributed over the last many years. And we're happy to do it. I mean, even those that don't agree with the 1689 would benefit by studying through it and just looking up the Scripture verses and recognizing the theological categories that are addressed there. And if you take exception with the Confession, well, that's fine. It's a man-made document, but we think it's a wonderful document that summarizes uh, very well what the Bible does teach. And by being confessional as a church, what we're saying is, look, we, we think God has guided us into truth on these issues. We're not looking for truth regarding baptism. We're not looking for truth regarding law and gospel or regarding the church or regarding the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. God has guided us in a way that we were prepared to nail our colors to the mast in all of these areas. Now, that doesn't mean that we think this is more important than the Bible or has authority over the Bible. Not at all. Mm-hmm. If you can show us where the confession is wrong from Scripture, then, man, we will say, okay, the confession's wrong. Scripture's right every time. But we're not coming to those debates. We're not coming to those conversations neutral. We're yeah. coming pre-committed. And here's our pre-commitment. We're just laying it on the table. So yeah. that's that's one of the values of being confessional is you're not having to reinvent your thinking every time you sit down and talk about things or engage. You're coming from a stated, clearly thought out Theological perspective. And, and what a blessing a confession is for local churches. Mm. Uh, it's, it's such a protection for yeah. churches uh, from error, uh, from error creeping in uh, through uh, the, the pastorate or through the elders. Mm-hmm. Um, when pastors and the elders know that I am free to teach anything within the bounds of this confession, and as soon as my convictions start to lead me away from what the co- confession teach, teaches on central issues, um, then I have to make that known, and the church has to do something about that. That's right. It, 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 if everyone will operate uh, ethically and humbly as a part of a confessional church, then you will save a lot of headaches mm-hmm. and divisiveness because people do change. People go to greater light. People go to less light in mm-hmm. their uh, their growth or their their ongoing life as Christians. And if you find yourself deviating from what a church has agreed upon, it's going to believe, well, then make that known. Mm -hmm. Just be honest. And that's happened here in our church, uh, sometimes very honorably and sometimes not so honorably, but it's happened. And we recognize, okay, we're not having to debate. Well, is, is this, is this view? Okay. Now, can we accept this and change our confession? And then we say, look, we have a confession. And if you have a complaint against confession or you think something is different in scripture, that uh, doesn't agree with this confession, show us from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And thus far, at least, you know, since I've been pastor here, that hadn't happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> at the, at the risk of sounding like a snobby purist, you know, I think it's been become fashionable for some to claim confessionalism and yeah. claim that, you know, they're 1689 or, and, and things like that. Um, when, when it quickly becomes clear that they don't really know the confession right. very well. And, and so I would say, you know, if you're going to claim to be confessional or you're going to claim to hold to the 1689, um, it's important to know what it says. It's important to study it. And if you don't agree with it on its central 
uh, doctrines, it's okay. It's right. okay to find a confession that you do agree with. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone has to, you know, cross every T and dot every I. Um, I don't, in my studying and teaching of the confession, I don't know that there's really anything that, that I would disagree with mm-hmm. in the confession. That includes the, the Pope <laughs> issue. Um, Although I, I, I might quibble over the article, whether the, the or, an. or an, a or an, yeah. So uh, and it depends on which day and this Pope, maybe the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you don't have to, you know, you don't have to sign off on every um, doctrine within right. the confession. But if you're going to say that you're confessional, I mean, the substantial issues in the confession, you got to hold to it. Yeah. And holding to it then, again, you're not having to go back and rediscover truth and reassert uh, things or, or try to re-exegete the text to say, oh, yeah, we are Baptists. You know, no, we, we've agreed on that. And we want to go back to the scripture. If we're seeing the scriptures wrongly, then okay, then, then mm-hmm. show us. But show us from the scripture and don't get upset because we come to the table with pre-commitments. Yeah. You know, we, we've already sorted these things out in these areas. Uh, the, the, a second area is long gospel. And man, this is massively important in our day. I and mean, that's why we reprinted Ernie Reisinger's book, uh, The Law and the Gospel, which is a great book. If you don't have it, just commend this book to you. It's a good uh, kind of simple um introductory uh, explanation of this doctrine, which these doctrines, which are so important and understanding that the law is given to us by God as is the gospel and that God loves his law as much as he loves his gospel is vitally important because today people will quote part of Romans six fourteen. It says, you know, we're under law, we're under grace, not under the law. And they think, well, we don't need anything to do with the law. Mm-hmm. How many times have you heard that? I've got the spirit. I don't need the law. Uh, I'm going to go with the law of Christ and not the law of Moses. And all these things get pitted against each other yeah. in ways that are not helpful nor true to the overall teaching of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's so important on this issue of of law to understand um, distinctions in the law of God, mm-hmm. um, because you know you read that passage in Romans and oh, the law is out. <laughs> no more law for me. I don't have to be obedient to anything. Well, that's yeah. not what he's saying. I mean, Mo, or, Paul is is making distinctions in the law of God, and the, you know traditionally we hold to the threefold distinction of the law of the Mosaic law, the civil, ceremonial, and uh, moral law. And I think one way in which covenant theology has really helped me in in my own uh, doctrinal life is seeing distinctions in the law and then distinctions between law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And so understanding uh, that God has given all men everywhere, his eternal moral law, but then he also relates to people through covenants. And right. sometimes he gives a law that are, that's specific for that covenant, often mm-hmm. um, distinguished between the moral law and the positive law of God, those positive laws, those laws, which he gives posits for a specific covenant. And, it goes that helps so much mm-hmm. when considering how do I then apply the law of God that I read all throughout Scripture today? Yeah, how do I live according to God's law? And so, uh, give us an example, Graham. And we've talked about this before. Uh, would it have been um, sin for Moses to to not be baptized? Was he sinning by not being right. baptized? Yeah, Moses was not baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's a positive law. Baptism is a positive law that God has given us in the new covenant. 
that the old covenant believers were not required to be obedient to. Similarly, there are laws that God gave in the old covenant that new covenant believers are not required to be obedient to because they're positive laws. Right. And one of the ways that that this has been helpful in thinking through these distinctions is to recognize what God was doing in Israel. And this is an important point that often gets missed by some of our friends that that are just full-blown theonomists. And they say, oh, you know, yeah, we've got to recreate the theocracy and take the Old Testament civil law, which the 1689 says, is abrogated, so yeah. you know you can't do that if, and be confessional. <clears throat> but to, to recognize that w- Israel was a worshiping community, so it was a church. Stephen calls it the church in the wilderness in Acts mm-hmm. chapter seven. It was also a body politic, and so it was a nation, and it was distinguished from other nations that were around it uh, during its national identity. But it was comprised also of people, and so what you just said about the eternal moral law of God that was true and and obligatory to Adam, as well as Moses, as well as Peter and John, as well as us today. We're still people. We're men. We're we're creatures made in the image of God. Therefore, that eternal moral law of God doesn't change. It is still binding upon us. However, the church today is no longer that Old Testament uh, worshiping community. We're, We're not identified that way, so we don't have the positive commands that apply to us or are obligatory to us today the way they were to Israel as a worshiping community, nor is the kingdom of Christ, is the church of Jesus Christ on earth representing that kingdom uh, are we a body politic? Right. So we're not a nation state. And so we don't look to the civil code to guide us in this uh, world. We are the church of Christ. However, having said that, as our confession acknowledges in chapter 19, verse or uh, paragraph 4, there are general equity. There's general equity embedded mm-hmm. in those civil laws that we ought to mine and try mm-hmm. to understand and apply. And so the, uh, the parapet around the roof to keep people from falling off, that's a good thing. You yeah. know? And so if we have laws that are based upon those kind of principles, that's general equity. We mm-hmm. praise God for that. But we're not trying to recreate a theocracy, but we are trying to emphasize the moral law of God. Yeah, a couple of interesting things. So in the confession, it says that <clears throat> Christians can serve in offices as a civil magistrate. Well, as soon as you allow for that, then those Christians who serve as a civil magistrate have to have to figure out, well, how do I legislate? How do mm-hmm. I rule justly according to God's law? Well, they can look to natural revelation, certainly, but the Bible's not off limits to right, that. That's and, right. And so the general equity of the Old Testament, um, Old Testament laws can be of great use to mm-hmm. a Christian who is in a, a sphere of authority over others and say and has to determine, okay, how do I legislate? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so when it comes to the to the to the law in the general equity equity and applying that within the church, we can do that too. Those civil laws and the general equity of those in the church. Paul does that in, in Romans when he That's says, right. don't muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. Yeah. And so it is interesting the way in which Paul applies the civil law of the old covenant to the new covenant. It's 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 not the way a theonomist would, <laughs> right? It's, he doesn't interpret it. He doesn't apply it the way a theonomist would. Yeah, and one of the, one of the areas where I was uh, really challenged and helped to think through this years ago, Chuck Colson, when he began prison fellowship, he started mining Old Testament civil law and calling for prison reform in the United States and really around the world. And there were places that actually tried to do some of the things that he suggested in terms of um, the uh, you know paying back the things that you have stolen and uh, paying for crimes you've done in ways other than mere incarceration. And yeah. it 
I think it was good. I mean, it was really helpful. It was a wonderful way to take Old Testament case law and show that through principles of restitution, right. we don't have to incor- incarcerate you know this high percentage of our population. We can provide a way out and a way forward that is more equitable, more righteous than what we do now. So that's just one area that was very helpful to me in thinking through that. The, the Besides the threefold division of the law in civil, ceremonial, and moral, there's also been in our studies of the moral law, the threefold use of it. And this comes to us out of the Protestant Reformation. Calvin's one area, one, one theologian that I know specifically that uh, teaches this. And this is an area that we need to recover as well today. Yeah. And most of my ministry has been arguing for the third use of the law. Yeah. You know, so the first use of the law is it brings about conviction. It's a mirror. It's a schoolmaster, as Paul says in Galatians, to lead us to Christ or to show us our need of Christ. The second use of the law is to restrain evil in the world. But the third use of the law is as a rule of life for believers. Right. And, of course, with uh, the kind of hardened dispensationalism and uh, – um, I don't know what else to call it, but but that hardened uh, kind of classical dispensationalism says, no, no, the Ten Commandments, we don't need those right. today. We're Christians, we have the Spirit, uh, we have the New Testament, so we don't need it. And so my my battle has been for most of my life, no, the, the Ten Commandments still obtain for Christians today, not as a ladder to get us to God, but as a uh, train track to keep us on the right path to show, show us what pleases God and the way we ought to live in his world. But something that's been dawning on me the last year or so is, man, that second use of the law. I I think we need to do more work on that. What does it mean to proclaim the law of God to restrain evil in the world? Mm -hmm. That's that's something that I'm thinking more about. Uh, Welcome dialogue about that. And I believe we need to recover it because I think it fits with what we've been trying to do here the last few years. Yeah, and I think it's... To preach the law, if you have a platform where you can preach the law to pagans, to unconverted sinners, uh, to be to preach that law without preaching the gospel, I think is inappropriate. That's right. But I think that we had a great opportunity to do that as we were led by some Canadian churches a few weeks ago to preach on biblical sexuality in response to Bill C-4 in, in Canada, mm-hmm. um, preaching the law of God as a restraint to evil within their own municipality, within their own nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did that same thing here in the U.S. US many churches here did that. I think that's one way in which the church um, can can preach the second use of the law, but never divorce from, okay, well, how does the gospel then, how does the gospel really rescue us from sin? Because we can't right. do it ourselves. You know, we can't make ourselves righteous, but God in his mercy has sent a son to make us righteous. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And that's a danger is to think just by preaching the law or just making people uh, act better that we've done what God's called us to do. No, he's called his people to make disciples in mm-hmm. this world, to call men and women and children from sin to the light that is in Christ to bow to Christ as Lord. So that's always primary. And in doing that, however, we, we do need to be willing to say to, uh, uh, Herod, you cannot have your brother's wife. Yeah. This is wrong for you to do this. We need to remind people there's a God in heaven. This is his world. And whenever you violate his law, there are consequences that will come to you that are they're really bad, eternal consequences, but there are temporal consequences as well because God designed the world to work in a certain way. So all of this really leads to that, that third area of emphasis for founders is pastoral theology. 
Pastors need to be thinking about these things. If we're going to shepherd God's people well, then we need to be right or be be driven by the Scripture to think rightly about law and gospel. Don't confuse them, and don't separate them in such a way that you think one has nothing to do with the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the law is the foundation of the gospel. To get the gospel right is to want to live uh, a righteous life according to what God has said is the right way to live, and then to proclaim that without any uh, embarrassment or fear of uh, being ridiculed or scorned by the world. Let that come if it must come. So understanding those things, uh, understanding the the value of knowing what you believe and confessing that mm-hmm. with pre-commitments, that's a pastor's job. Yeah. And as, as we do that as shepherds for local congregations, then we're inevitably going to try to help our congregations to stand firm in the world. And I think we've been disoriented a lot over the last four or five years, especially in the West and here in North America, and more particularly the United States, because the ground has shifted. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about Aaron Wren's uh, threefold yeah. understanding of what's happened the last 50 to 60 years in the United States, but it fits. We've gone from the positive world where Christianity was applauded to the neutral world where it was tolerated, and now to the negative world where it's uh, there's antagonism against it. And I don't know that uh, evangelicals have done a really good job of navigating this negative world. Yeah. One thing that he talks about is that the church has developed strategies for each world that it lives in. But when, since we've been in this negative world, um, it's almost like we've been taken totally off guard and we just don't have strategies. We've not developed strategies at a, um, in terms of the visible church here in the U.S., but also just you know local institutions. Local churches, um, we haven't figured out how do we live as Christians in a culture that despises us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and of course, that's what we're trying to do, founders. We're wanting to resource church leaders, pastors especially, but all congregations, all Christians, to think about these things better. And so in recent years, we've done you know, the doctrine of God. This is God's world. That's fundamental. Mm-hmm. And this year in the conference that just happened, 2022, we did the doctrine of the church. You know, and what a wonderful conference that was uh, to have these men come in and preach on the church militant and the church triumphant. I've, I've had people uh, reach out to me since the conference say, man, we're so grateful for it and appreciate you making it available uh, free online uh, in the streaming. And we're grateful to be able to do that. And we'll be doing more of that going forward. Um, some have said to me, we really were concerned about the language of militant, you know, church militant. I, I actually had some people get upset with me prior to the conference over the last year that we would Im- imbibe that type of language. But several have said, you know, we, now we understand what you mean. You're not talking about arming people with AK-47s and, you know, marching on the capitals. You're talking about taking up the weapons of our warfare that right. the scripture does give to us. Right and equipping us to stand firm in the evil day. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is militating <clears throat> yeah. against the gates of hell. Yeah, it was great. I mean, to hear Vody Balkum address that and uh, Conrad and Bayway's message on Revelation 5, yeah. wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, and of course, <laughs> you know, we didn't get to have James Coates. who got stopped by the U.S. border agents. Uh, trying to get into the United States and was told he's not an essential worker here. It was very disappointing to me, but it just highlighted the need for this conference. Pastors need to be thinking about that. Was that a righteous thing for our nation to do? Uh, And I would say no. 
It wasn't. It's a shift in the way we've operated now for uh, generations with Canada and their reasons undergirding that. And we need to be thinking about those things and trying to address them biblical. That biblically, that's pastoral responsibility, and it requires pastoral theology. But you know, then again, we had Don Green come in. Mm-hmm. And just did a wonderful job, you know, expounding God's word for us. So that though, that conference was wonderful. The uh, videos of that will be made available on our YouTube channel and on the website. So if you haven't seen them, haven't watched and listened to those sessions, really commend them to you. So so we did the Doctrine of God, mm-hmm. Doctrine of Church, and then in 2023, our 40th year anniversary, we're going to have in January 2023 the Doctrine of Man. And again, foundational. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so many crazy things have happened. Yeah. About- it, it's amazing. Um, you know, people people can often get upset with churches or figures or ministries. You know, it seems like they always dwell in in, um, in divisiveness. They always dwell in and you know, just fighting people over certain issues. Um, but we live in a world again that is hostile to mm-hmm. us. Um, we live in a world when they think about who is a man or what is a man, what is a woman, radically different answers from what God gives us in his word and in his world. Yeah. Um, and so how could you, we do dwell in controversy. You know, yeah. it, it's unavoidable. Um, even when we just talk about the basics of what is mankind. Um, but what a great opportunity to be able to proclaim the truth of God's word to a world where it seems like a radical, radical thing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm excited about it. Uh, we've got Vody Balcom coming to speak, Paul Washer, Joel Beakey will be with us, and we're going to have others that we'll, we'll name uh, later that we'll add to this list. It'll be coming to address this vitally important subject. In fact, we've got a little uh, promo to give you a taste of what's coming. Let me just with pause right now and show you this so that you can understand uh, what this 2023 conference will be like and encourage you to sign up for it. What is man? If we don't understand who we are in God's creation, we're going to be hindered from understanding who God is as the one who created us. He's the crowning glory of the creation of God, who is designed to bring glory to God through exercising dominion and stewardship over the rest of God's creation. The Bible tells us very clearly what mankind is. We are image bearers of the one true God, and we've lost that today. And now we've taken it uh, upon ourselves to not only argue that man wasn't created, but also that man now gets to redefine really the essence of our humanity. And so a man can become a woman, or a woman can become a man, we're told. These types of ideas permeate our culture. This entire transgender movement is redefining what it means to be a man. Not from the standpoint of God and his sovereignty and his creation and his authority, but from the standpoint of man and his autonomy and his own sovereignty. The 2023 Founders Conference on the Doctrine of Man, What is Man, is vitally important. For God's people to gather and to submit ourselves to His Word and to listen to teachers like Joel Beakey and Paul Washer and Vody Balcom expound the scriptures on this theme. 
The church must address this issue because if we don't, who will? Those of us who have serious convictions about God's Word and the priority of that Word within the context of our current cultural milieu, we often find ourselves feeling alone and isolated. It's very important that we find each other, that we encourage one another, and that we spur one another on. I can't think of a better opportunity that will be afforded to us in this next year than this 2023 Founders Conference to come together and study this vitally important theme. Plus, where else would you want to be in January than South Florida? Well, you, you've gotten a little bit of a taste from that video of what's coming up. And I was told today, Hannah said that we're already like at 25% capacity with registrations. And early registrations, I think, are going on right now. So you can get the, the cheapest rate that you can get for signing up for the conference right now. So we encourage you to come to uh, Southwest Florida in January, which is always a wonderful place to be in January. Um, this year, the sun wasn't as prevalent as we might have liked. <laughs> but hey, compared to where you, <laughs> what was going up north, it was still a good place to be. You may notice our sweaters. <laughs> That's today. right. Yeah, it's a little bit. <laughs> chilly down here but uh, we would welcome you to come join us for this 2023 conference on what is man well that's kind of a overview of founders where we've been what's going on with us how we have been addressing the things we are addressing and what we intend to do going forward one of the things that we've become uh, recommitted to recently is making as many of our resources available as we can for free and we can do this because there are people who support the work of founders and the Institute of Public Theology. And without that kind of support, we just we couldn't do these things. But we want to especially thank those Founders Alliance members and Founders Alliance churches that have said, yeah, we believe in the vision of the ministry of founders and we want to partner with you in this. If you'd like more information about that, I'd be glad to talk to you. You can write uh, us at Founders Ministries, go to the website, get information, and we'll try to answer any questions you have, but we're grateful for those who support us. And we're grateful for you listening to the Sword and the Trial podcast. I'm always surprised when people say, hey man, you know, we listen to your podcast and we are grateful for what you guys are doing. Uh, so I know that there's at least, counting your wife, my wife, maybe five or six people at least yeah. that are listening to yeah. this every week. Yeah. So thanks for joining us.